You know, I know that you know this already. But what we see out there in the world, the chaos, the rage, the rebellion, the depravity, and the tumult of the nations, all the things that we see out there, you know this, that's not going to last forever, is it? It won't always be that way. Everything that we see right now in the world, all of that is subject to change. And I know you know this, but it bears worth repeating that one day every tribe and tongue and nation and people one day will bow down in glad-hearted subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns to earth and builds his kingdom on the planet. All of that is going to happen, and everything that we see now in the world will be radically changed. Psalm 2 tells us that the ends of the earth belong to the Messianic king, and that one day he will rule them with a rod of iron, Psalm 22 is clear that one day all the ends of the earth, one day all the families of the nations will bow down in subjection to him as the king. Daniel 7, 13 and 14 is so clear that one day the Son of Man will come on a cloud and to him will be given dominion and majesty and a kingdom and all the peoples and nations and tongues will serve him. His dominion will be an everlasting dominion and his kingdom will not be destroyed. I know you know that. But you see, there's a catch. There's a catch to the nations, the peoples, the tribes, and the tongues knowing, subjecting themselves, bowing down to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the catch is how those nations will get saved and gain access to the kingdom. Is us. It's us. You see, we are the means. The church is the instrument. You see, the people and the nations who will be there in the kingdom will be there precisely through the means and the witness of the church, through the prayer-drenched, word-filled, word-proclaiming, church-planting, martyrdom-enduring witness of the church. You understand that, don't you? What that means is that we're talking about Matthew 28 which is the most concentrated, power-packed, pressure-cooked declaration of the mission of Christ ever given to the church in the pages of Scripture. And yet the thing about that passage is that you know it. You know it. You've been there. You love it. You maybe even have it memorized. And yet, like most texts in the Bible that are familiar to us, there is more there than meets the eye. And you know the passage is when the risen Christ stands on that mountain in Galilee after the resurrection and declares to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth was given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you all the days, even to the end of the age. You see, you know it. The question is, do you know it? Do you really know 
that text because when Christ said that, he pulled the trigger on a global mission planned before time, and it is literally the means by which we populate the kingdom. What I mean is, as the church, we have a mission, and as the church, we have a destination. And if our destination as a church is the kingdom, and it most certainly is our destination, then that means that our mission has to be to populate the kingdom with as many people as absolutely possible. It just has to be our mission, and that is exactly what our mission is. And something you have to understand this morning is that the Great Commission is not merely just for missionaries. Rather, it is the meaning and the ministry and the mission of every single person in this room who belongs to Jesus Christ. Because at the end of the day, the people who will be there in the kingdom will be there precisely through the means and the witness of the church. And that urgent, that global mission of getting lost people into the kingdom is exactly what we see in our text this morning. And Yes, I know, we are in Isaiah. We are in Isaiah, and yet there's a couple things that drive me to preach on Matthew 28 this morning. Number one, last week we saw in Isaiah an oracle predicting salvation coming to the ends of the earth. And the second thing that drives me to preach on this today is that the elders and the missions team are at the beginning of a, of a process, what will be probably a long process of rethinking, reformulating, rebuilding from the ground up our missions philosophy and methodology. They're exciting days at Christ's community. And so the best place to do that is Matthew 28. The most famous, well-known passage on the Great Commission found in the pages of Scripture. And yet, and yet, there is a danger here. There's a danger here because when I say Great Commission, I know that most people in the room automatically assume cross-cultural missions. That this passage only applies to those who get on a plane, go overseas, and spend their lives proclaiming the gospel in a foreign nation. And in so doing, automatically assume that this passage does not apply to them. I want to shape your thinking on that this morning. Because what we find here in Matthew 28 is not only a radical call to reach the nations, but a summons to every single soul who belongs to Jesus Christ to prioritize your lives around his global cause unfolding in the world. So you can see from the title, Impossible and Invincible. That this calling, that this mission to make disciples is both impossible and invincible at the same time. It's impossible for us as weak and needy people, but for the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, it is absolutely invincible. This is certain. This is guaranteed. This is going to happen. And yet, here's the point. It is going to happen precisely through the means and the witness of the church. And through this church in particular, through preaching, through proclaiming, through praying, through church planting, all the while suffering persecution. You see, I want us to be a God-centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated, joy-pursuing, missions-advancing church. That's why we move down here to partner with you partner with you in advancing the global cause of Christ unfolding in the world to make this church a launch site for global ministry, to make this church a global outpost of joy in a world of despair. So the question is at the outset, are you ready for that? 
Are you ready to make this church the kind of home base it needs to be to advance that mission? The question is, are you ready to help make this church a living factory that makes disciples? That make disciples? That make disciples? That plant churches? That make disciples? And on and on it goes until all of God's elect are reached and history is over. Are you ready to be? Do you want to be that kind of church? And I know that you do. And so the best way, the best way to become that kind of church is to open the sacred text and let it produce in our souls a passion to be those kinds of people. And so we go to Matthew 28. This morning I want you to see from our text three foundational realities. Three foundational realities you must know to finish the mission as disciples of Christ. That's where we're going. Three foundational realities. Realities that you must know to finish the mission as disciples of Christ. And reality number one, you must know the staggering declaration of Christ. You must know the staggering declaration of Christ. Now you know, don't you, why the Gospels are in our Bibles? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know why the Gospels exist. You know that these are not merely the exploits of an eccentric rabbi who took things a little too far and got himself killed. No, you understand what these are, are the fulfillment of ancient prophecy. That the long-awaited Messiah had come to earth to reverse the curse and save ruined sinners from eternal woe and despair. That God himself incarnated as a human being and arrived on the scene of history as a man to save the human race from the inside out. These are the Gospels, the compelling resume that Jesus Christ is a treasure worth giving everything up for. And when we get to Matthew 28, we find some of the most gripping events, not only in the gospel itself, but even in human history. You see, after the death of Christ, the deepest significance of which was lost on most, after the death of Christ, here are the disciples. Heartbroken, disillusioned, cowering in fear, off the grid, in shock and despair, trying to figure out how to put the pieces of their lives back together. On the resurrection day morning, Mary Magdalene and a group of other women show up to the tomb. Note, not to worship a risen redeemer, but to pay their final respects and say goodbye because they were not expecting a resurrection. Interestingly enough, though, Saturday, the day before, there was an earthquake. And so these women show up to the tomb not only to find the stone of the tomb rolled away, but even an angelic being sitting on top of the stone. And he announces to the women, you remember, that Christ has in fact come back from the dead and that their job, he tells them in Matthew 28, is to go to the 11 disciples to tell them to meet him in Galilee and that they would see him with their very own eyes resurrected and triumphant from the tomb. And that just changes everything, doesn't it? All of a sudden, the events that happened three days before this, they begin to see in a profoundly different way. They begin to see that the murder of their master was not a martyrdom, it was an atonement. He was not a helpless victim who died in the clutches of his enemies, but he was a victorious king who died for his enemies. 
that the death that he died, he died for others in their place, that this was not a suicide mission, this was a salvation mission to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And disciples got that message and they packed their bags and they head to Galilee to meet the only man in history to ever raise himself from the dead. Look at verse 16. Now the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus commanded them. Ironically, the Gospel of Matthew ends where it first began, namely in the sticks of Galilee. Zip codes away from the hub of Jerusalem, and there the disciples proceed, not as a dejected group of losers who temporarily got sucked into a cult by some lunatic. No, they went back to Galilee with the Adam-charged hope and certainty that they were not crazy, but that they had, in fact, seen God in human flesh. That they hadn't been duped by an imposter. That Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah for whom Israel had waited for centuries. And now that he had risen triumphant from the grave, these men would be transformed from these quivering little animals hiding in a hole somewhere into apostles. Blue collar, middle class, non-college degree nobodies who would shake the world and bring the Roman Empire to its knees. Through preaching, through proclamation, through church planting, through letter writing, the letters of which you have in your own Bibles, and they go, they go to this prearranged meeting place on a mountain in Galilee where they would receive the greatest marching orders in history. And, and here's the thing. The fact that they meet at a mountain, that should not be overlooked. We should not overlook that. You understand that there is a theology of mountains in the Bible. Did you know that? I've said this before. You understand that God used literal mountains as places to reveal his character and new phases of his plan. For instance... Exodus chapter 3, God appears as a burning bush and beckons Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, and he does so on a mountain. Exodus chapter 20, Yahweh gives the law from a mountain. Matthew chapter 5 through 7, Christ preaches the greatest sermon in history on a mountain. Luke chapter 9, Christ transfigures himself, gives a foretaste of the kingdom, shows a display of his glory to the disciples, and he does so on a mountain. The prophets are clear. When Christ returns, when the Messiah arrives, he will rule his global throne from a, uh, he will rule his kingdom from a throne on a mountain, Mount Zion. And here he is, giving the greatest marching orders in history. On a mountain. And when the disciples saw him, you can see for yourself what happened. Look at verse 17. Now the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus commanded them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. See that? They worshipped. I mean, what the heck else were they going to do? The Old Testament says to worship God. 
and serve him only. And that's exactly what they do because they understood. They understood that this was no mere ordinary rabbi who did nice things for people. But this is the infinite God who came to earth and revealed himself as a human being. Who this was, was God himself. Which is a staggering thing to wrap your head around, isn't it? That God, without ever ceasing to be fully God, became fully man. That the one they saw three days ago, this mutilated lump of bloody flesh impaled on a Roman torture device, now stands before them resurrected as if he had never died in the first place. I mean, we have no categories to reconcile that. We have no logical deductions that we can make sense of that in our minds. And so we judge not too harshly, do we? Those who doubt it. Because it's not every day that you encounter someone who just rose himself from the dead. So having crawled into the belly of death itself and blew it up from the inside, Christ emerges as a conqueror and a champion. And as the disoriented disciples bow down before their risen redeemer, Christ walks up to them. And out of his mouth comes one of the most, if not the most, jaw-dropping declarations ever made in human history. Look at verse 18. All... Authority in heaven and on earth was given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth was given to me. A verse that deserves its own sermon. And no question the disciples over the last three years, they had a growing awareness, didn't they not, that they were a part of something profound. But with this statement, all authority was given to me. With that statement, everything Christ ever said and did, now all connected together like a circuit. Oh, that's why. Oh, oh, that's why he can heal diseases from another zip code. Oh, that's how. That's how he turned the sea into a sidewalk and walked on water. Oh, that's how. He changed the molecular structure of water into wine from across the room. Oh, that's how he could stop hurricane winds with his mind powers. That's how he could make demons beg for his mercy. That's how he could raise rotting corpses out of their tombs because he has all authority. Before the resurrection, it was hard to deny that this is God in human flesh. But now, with this statement, it is the only logical explanation. And so the question becomes, what does it mean that Jesus Christ has all authority? What does it mean for our lives? And what does it mean for the mission to which we are called? There are two aspects, two aspects of this declaration of Christ that we have to have a conversation about. Number one, there is the possession. And number two, there is the location. The possession and the location. First, first, notice the possession. Christ says, all authority in heaven and on earth was given to me. He has all authority. Which is another way of saying there is not one ounce of authority in the universe that does not belong to him. Jesus Christ has, get this now, infinite, sovereign unlimited, boundless power by which he governs the universe and everything in it. He calls the shots. 
He pulls the strings. He rules the roost. Everything in existence is under his sovereign jurisdiction. Do you believe that this morning? You understand Jesus Christ answers to no one. To no one. There's no one beyond him. There's no court of appeals to which he must look. There's no one that can challenge his decrees. There's no rule book to which he looks, no committee from which he has to obtain permission. No, he rules and he reigns and he guides and he governs and he causes and controls. And he brings every single event in life and in history to the exact outcome that he himself determined. Unlike the episode of Twilight Zone I watched as a kid, there's an episode of a man who was cursed with holding the world into being. doesn't explain how it got that way, but somehow this man had to, was given control of the entire planet. And somehow, some way, he had constructed in his apartment this giant contraption made of junk. There were levers and pulleys and buttons and conveyor belts and, and car parts all sort of hanging there together just barely holding together. All of it was on the verge of collapse, and what it was was a model of the world, and he had to hold the world into being. And any disasters that took place in the world, like earthquakes or floods or fires or hurricanes or wars or invasions, were simply because he could not get there fast enough to keep those things from happening. He could not figure out how to solve the dilemma. And the premise of the episode, of course, is that that is what God is like. He's frantic. He's panicked. He's stressed. He's incompetent, and he is the one to blame. And much though the pagan bent of our hearts wants to go there and envisions something like that, that is simply not who Jesus Christ is. He has absolute, undisputed dominion over everything, and he governs everything that comes to pass. The question is, do you believe that? What I mean is, are these the lenses through which you view the world and history and everything that transpires in your life? Because you understand the limitless authority of Jesus Christ is not merely for our own personal comfort and security, although it is that. You understand this verse right here in verse 18, the implications of this verse, it is the cure for all fear. It is the cure for all anxiety. This verse even has the power to drill down into our souls and cure the deepest, darkest depression of our lives. It has that power. But that is not Christ's main concern here. Rather, the supreme authority of Christ that governs all the world's events, including, note this, sin and evil, should unleash five effects in our lives. The supreme authority of Christ should unleash five effects in our lives. Number one, it should stimulate worship. I'm going to repeat these again. Don't even bother writing them down. Number one, it should stimulate worship. Number two, it should annihilate fear. Number three, it should liberate boldness. Number four, it should recalibrate our priorities. And number five, it should motivate mission. Let's take these one at a time. Number one, the supreme authority of Christ stimulates worship. It stimulates worship. Worship of Jesus Christ himself. 
And you understand that the worship of Jesus Christ, the glad-hearted, soul-thrilled worship of Jesus Christ is the fountain from which all boldness uh, boldness in the proclamation of the gospel comes. Guilt and obligation are poor and sad motivations by themselves to be more vocal for the gospel. They are not effective for gospel proclamation. Rather, the more our souls become staggered by the supreme authority of Jesus Christ and his invincible rule over the cosmos, the less we will fear, the more bold we will become. Number two. The supreme authority of Christ annihilates fear. The supreme authority of Christ annihilates fear because you understand fear in the soul is sown by the seeds of a weak theology that does not marvel at the majesty of Christ. See, there is a direct correlation between our fear to proclaim the gospel and puny thoughts about Jesus Christ, too puny to move us to speak. You understand that, right? Which means the higher up into the supremacy of Christ we climb, the less we will be ashamed from proclaiming him to perishing people. Number three. Number three, the supreme authority of Christ liberates boldness with the gospel. The supreme supreme authority of Christ liberates boldness with the gospel because you understand a private faith, a silent Christianity is no Christianity at all. A silent Christian is no, a silent faith is no faith at all. You see, boldness and courage with the gospel are the logical result of a faith that is persuaded that Jesus Christ rules the universe with absolute ease. Which means if you want more freedom and boldness and courage with the gospel, and you should want that, the answer is precisely found in getting your soul rocked and clobbered by riveting portrayals of the supremacy and beauty of Jesus Christ from the pages of Scripture. Number four. Number four, the supreme authority of Christ recalibrates our priorities. It recalibrates our priorities. Life Priorities, family priorities, money priorities, how we spend our time, how, how we live our lives in a more strategic way is shaped and governed and produced by visions of the supremacy of Christ. In other words, the supremacy of Christ and his mission unfolding in the world reminds us that life is too short, too precious, too painful to waste on worldly bubbles that burst. Heaven is too great, hell is too horrible, eternity is too long that we should putter around on the porch of eternity. I'm not saying that we shouldn't eat ice cream or watch baseball or go to amusement parks, do all those things. I'm just saying that's the supreme authority of Christ. Should we be gripped by his infinite authority? and his invincible mission unfolding in the world, we will not spend our lives on what is empty and trivial. Number five, the supreme authority of Christ motivates mission. It motivates mission. You see, the supreme authority of Christ motivates us to prioritize our lives around his global cause. And the reason it does that is because this is a no-lose, win-win situation, isn't it? 
the happy ever after of the plan has already been written. We're called to reach the nations, and yet we turn to the book of Revelation, and what do we see? We see the nations already there. A portrayal of them in the future. Christ wins everything. There's nothing to lose. There's everything to gain. It motivates mission. That's the possession. Christ has all authority. But notice there, number two, the location. The location in which Christ has all authority. And where does he have all authority? What exactly is the jurisdiction of the Lord Jesus Christ? What does he say? All authority in heaven and on earth was given to me. Heaven and earth is his jurisdiction. Which is just another way of saying that Jesus Christ rules the entire universe and he does so with absolute ease. Doesn't that... Doesn't that shape the way you view the world? Doesn't that alter the way you hear the news? Doesn't that profoundly transform the lenses by which you understand the world and everything transpiring? Everything falls under the sovereign, omnipotent, invincible authority and jurisdiction of Jesus Christ. Make no mistake, to say that he has all authority does not merely mean at all that Christ must merely passively allow things to happen and then simply make the best of it? No, you understand all things do the sovereign bidding of the Lord Jesus Christ. The planets and galaxies that NASA will never see and every single roll of the dice in Las Vegas are determined by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. There is not one square inch and all the universe where Jesus Christ does not say this is mine and I rule it and I have authority over it. Let's know what Patrick Johnstone says. He wrote this in a pamphlet, a guide for world missions. Listen very carefully to what he says. All the earth-shaking, awesome forces unleashed on the world are unleashed by Jesus Christ. He reigns today. He is in the control room of the universe. He is the only ultimate cause. All the sins of man and schemes of Satan ultimately must enhance the glory and kingdom of our Savior. Notice this warning. We have become too enemy conscious and we overdo the spiritual warfare aspect of intercession. Rather, we need to be more God conscious so that we can laugh the laugh of faith knowing that Jesus Christ has all the power over the evil. The question is, can you laugh the laugh of faith knowing that no matter what it is that transpires in the world, Jesus Christ is the ultimate cause? And that all the sins of man and all the schemes of the evil one must ultimately enhance the kingdom and glory of our Savior? Are those the lenses through which you view the world and your lives? Here's the implication of this statement. I linger so long in verse 18 because it's not only foundational to our lives, it's foundational to our mission. 
The fact that Christ has all authority, get this now, it means that whatever it is that is about to come out of his mouth as to what our mission is, that it should drive and shape and govern everything about your lives. Seriously. That what Christ is about to say should shape and determine every single decision of your life, social, financial, geographical, relational, marital, everything must bow down in allegiance to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. That's the implication. That's exactly where Christ goes next, which brings us to the second foundational reality that you must know to finish the mission as disciples of Christ. Number two, you must know the sovereign mission from Christ. You must know the sovereign mission from Christ. Because you understand the Jews knew, they understood that salvation would reach to the ends of the earth. That was not a surprise to them. They saw that coming that was very clear in the prophets. And yet, they had zero idea of the means by which that vision would become a reality. Here in Matthew 28 is the means. Look at verses 19 and 20. All authority in heaven and on earth was given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded. Can you see the connection, don't you? You see the the logic of the text. Christ has infinite sovereign authority. He governs everything that comes to pass. Therefore, you got to go. Therefore, you need to make disciples. You understand Jesus Christ has the right and the authority to call every soul in existence in allegiance to him. And he has the right and the authority to call you in this room to reach them, which he does. And there's something you need to see here. Greek is samurai, sword, precise, and particular about main points. About main verbs, main points, and subpoints that support the main verbs. And what you need to understand is that the main verb in the text, the main verb that grabs your attention, the gravitational center of the entire text is the command, make disciples. That's the gravitational center. That's the focus. And every other verb in the text, go and baptize and teach, those are but condiments that spice and flavor the main verb. Put it this way, they are there to explain what it means to make disciples and how to do it. And you notice that Christ wants the disciples and us to go. Because the sovereign mission of Christ, this is not a come and see mission. This is a search and find. Rather, it is a show and tell mission. You have to understand, contrary to what so many church growth experts would say, our mission as a church is not to build fancy, attractional programs that gets butts in the seats, and then we do an altar call at the end. That's not, that's not the model. Rather, also, the mission of Christ is not to be... like. To just try to be this really good person and then just wait around for people to ask you about your church and then that's your opportunity to, to spring the trap? No, they don't care about your church. They don't. And increasingly, they are not going to ask you. Rather, our mission, you understand, is to infiltrate the darkness 
to go behind enemy lines, to stand with our toes on eternity and plead with ruined sinners to be saved and then take the next 10 years to disciple them so that they can also make disciples. And so we must go. We must go to their desks, to their homes, to their neighborhoods, to their campuses. And we must preach, we must proclaim. This is the active and vocal pursuit of a people who would be very happy if you never said anything to them. And yet do what exactly? What exactly is the mission given to us by Christ? And I know you already know the answer, but look again at the text. And I want you to own this as the very mission of your lives, whether you stay here in America or you get on a plane and go somewhere else. This is your mission. This defines what you do. Look what he says in verse 19. All authority in heaven and on earth was given to me. Go, therefore, here it is, and make disciples. Make disciples of all the nations baptizing them and teaching them all that I commanded. There it is. Make disciples, he says. You understand that's the work. That is the mission to which you, all of you are called. Did you know that? To make disciples. Which means what? It means that while feeding the poor, housing the homeless, helping to end the sex trade, pursuing justice, orphan ministry, and abortion have their rightful place in the church. It's not that those things don't matter. They profoundly do matter. It's just that those things are not the mission of the church. They're not. I'm not saying we can't or shouldn't do those things. No one's saying that. I'm just saying this is the central focused mission to which you, all of you, are called to make disciples. Of course, what this does is raise the question, doesn't it? What is a disciple? What is a disciple and how exactly do you go about making disciples? And the answer to the question is devastating in a good way. You see, Christ made it plain what it means to be his disciple and he used the most provocative and dramatic language to do so. You remember, don't you? You remember that this is the, this is the call to become a Christian. This is the call to become a believer. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. What is a cross? It's a cruel instrument of torture and death. Follow him where? Follow him to the place of execution. What does he mean? A disciple is someone whose allegiance to Jesus Christ is so strong and supreme that all other allegiances must bow down to him in submission. You die if called to do so. How else does Christ define a disciple? He says, if anyone does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Not my words, his words. Luke 14, 25. If anyone does not give up all his own possessions, he cannot be my disciple. Not my words, his the one who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. Do you hate your life in this world? Did you know that when you signed on the dotted line, when you believed in Christ, that you were saying, I am resolved now to hate my life in this world that I may keep it for eternal life? That's a disciple. And your job is to make more of those. That's your job. 
You understand that to be a disciple means that all that Christ is and all that Christ accomplished becomes four things. Listen carefully. To be a disciple means that Christ becomes, one, your deepest treasure. Number two, your ultimate significance. Number three, your consuming identity. And number four, your highest allegiance. That's what a disciple is. That's what it means to be a Christian, that all that Christ is and all that Christ accomplished is these four things, your deepest treasure, your ultimate significance, your consuming identity, your highest allegiance. Is that what you understood when you professed Christ? Maybe the better question is, are you a disciple? Is Christ, your deepest treasure? Is he your ultimate significance? Is he your consuming identity? Is he your highest allegiance? Because I really, really need you to know that if you do not belong to Jesus Christ this morning or you are unsure of where you stand, you need to know right now that he will not settle for second place. Ever. He will not merely allow you to add him to a life cluttered full of countless distractions. He will not be reduced to being one more thing on a long list of things that competes for your affections. He will not permit you to set the terms or define the relationship or negotiate what it means to follow him. No, you follow him and you die. You die to self. You die to the world. You die to everything that you used to love more than him and you become his slave. Not my words, his. And yet that is the most joyful life that can be lived. Do you know him? Are you a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because there is literally zero reason to wait to yield to him even at this very moment. That is a disciple. And your job is to make more of those. And you notice, of course, that we are to make disciples of who? Pantata ethne. We're to make disciples of all the nations, which means as believers, we literally carry the weight of the world on our shoulders, don't we? The entire human race, feel this, the entire human race is under the curse of sin and the wrath of God and without supernatural intervention, every soul would go to hell forever. Say it slowly in your mind, eternal punishment, eternal conscious torment. That is real. That is a thing. And there are people there even as we speak. And yet Christ has a plan, doesn't he? And the plan is to make disciples. And I'll just have you know, when Christ commands us to make disciples of all the nations, he wasn't making this up. This wasn't like a new development in the plan. Oh, the nations? Oh, well, that's interesting. That's new. No, this is, a, this is a culmination of a long series of announcements and predictions that one day salvation would reach to the ends of the earth. From the very beginning, God has had a global plan to reach the ends of the earth with salvation, to undo what Adam has done, to reverse the curse, break the spell, 
and fill it once again with worshipers in every tribe and tongue and nation and people. And so Matthew 28, you understand, is the means by which that happens. And you understand, we are the means. You know that, right? The people who will be there in the kingdom will be there through the means and the witness of the church, and this church in particular. And here's the thing about that command to make disciples. For whatever reason, we are pre-programmed, and it is so hard to help people break loose of this, but we are so pre-programmed by whatever, something, that we think that making disciples merely means to share the gospel. It includes that. But it is not only that. Because in reality, what we must come to grips with is that making disciples is not just evangelism. Get this. It is intentional, faithful, persistent investment of the word of God into their lives after you evangelize them. That's making disciples. In other words, it's the entire process from conversion to maturation, from baby to maturity where you intentionally invest the word of God into the lives of another person, teaching them to obey, to observe, to keep, to submit everything that Christ commanded. You can see it in the text. Look what he says, verse 19, All authority belongs to Christ. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded, all that he commanded. that's a lot of material. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's a ton of material to teach people. And when you consider the fact that Paul called all of Scripture the word of Christ, that means that our job as disciple makers is to teach people the whole counsel of God. That's a disciple. Here's what's really interesting. There's two means of making disciples here. This is how you make disciples. First, notice in the text, after they get saved, you dunk them. You baptize them by immersion into water, which for me raises the question, why is baptism part of the process? Do you ever consider that? That that baptism is such a big deal that Christ would include it on his his instructions of global missions to make disciples of all of the nations. Because I'll have you know that we have cheapened baptism in our day. We have literally watered it down. We tend to make it this all-about-me personal milestone or this mystical thing that gets us in touch with the supernatural. No, baptism is two profound things all at the same time. First, baptism is a dramatization. Second, it is a declaration. Baptism is a dramatization. Number two, it is a declaration. Meaning what? Meaning baptism is a dramatization. In other words, baptism, get this now, is a dramatic reenactment of what happened to your soul when you got saved. That's what it is. When God raised you, as it were, from the spiritual dead, the very posture of going down into the water, being submerged into death, and the picture of resurrection is a display of what God has already done in your soul. It doesn't do anything magically for you. It is a portrayal. It is a dramatization. Number two, baptism is a declaration. Baptism, you understand, is a public declaration that you belong to Jesus Christ and the community of the redeemed. 
when you got baptized or when you get baptized in the future, it means you are making a statement that you have renounced all other gods and lords and kings and treasures and that you are, you are joining a battalion of souls whose supreme allegiance is the triune God in whose name you were baptized. That is baptism. Because they say, don't they, blood is thicker than water. And whatever that means, I guess that's true, but that's not true when you're talking about the waters of baptism. Because when you are baptized, you are making one of the most profound, significant statements about the status of your soul that has Trinitarian roots stretching back in time to before the world began. The second means of making disciples, and this is an absolute deal breaker, this is central to what Christianity is all about. Look again at verse 19. Christ says, make disciples of all the nations. How do you do this? What does this look like? First, you baptize them in the name of the triune God. Second, here it is. You teach them to observe all that I commanded. You teach them to observe. Teach is present tense participle. Teaching, ongoing process. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded. It's very interesting to me. For too long in America, we have grown accustomed to the evangelism model of a big event. Isn't that what many, how many people perceive evangelism? You have a big tent revival meeting kind of thing, and after a moving gospel message and some manipulative music, people are invited to raise a hand or walk an aisle or, or sign a card. And afterwards, there's these grandiose claims about how many people came to Christ, and we cheer and we clap and we applaud. And yet I fear, I fear that our cheering and our applauding and clapping has been presumptuous. Because the immediate question that should come into our minds about two and a half seconds after we hear about all those supposed conversions is this. Here's the question we should ask. That sounds great. That sounds good. I hope the gospel was proclaimed. Here's the question. Will those people be discipled and cared for by thoughtful, intentional, word-centered people in the context of the local church? That's the question. That's the question. Is anyone there in the local church to take this delicate baby into the NICU of the local church and lovingly feed them with the milk of the word and wrap them in the blankets of love and fellowship? Is there anyone there to give them the whole counsel of God, to teach them all that Christ commanded? Because if not, I'm just being honest with you, I suspend my enthusiasm until I know for sure. This is the model. It's in the text. This is the mission. This is the model, not just to make disciples, but to make disciples who make disciples, who make disciples, who plant churches that make disciples until all of God's elect are reached and history is over. Now, there's lots to be said about how to do this. Let me just tell you this, though. You can tell that the word of God is central to the entire mission, isn't it? So here's an application for you. It's like, okay, I want to know how to make disciples. Well, there's a lot to that. That deserves its own sermon. Here is something you need to hear. God's plan literally unfolds through the means of the scriptures taught with clarity and power. Do you hear that? 
God's plan for history literally unfolds through the means of the scriptures being taught with clarity and with power. And it starts at your own desk with the word of God between your elbows, meditating on the sacred text. And it starts in your homes, around the table, with your kids, and really hard, brutal Bible times with little kids that never seems to go very well. It starts there. It starts with you getting your soul saturated with the word of God. It starts with you with you opening the sacred text for people inside the local church and counseling them with the word of God. The point is, the point is, the most loving service that you can render to another human being is to have daily meditation upon the sacred text. To have an IV drip line dependent relationship upon the word of God. Do Do you hear what I'm saying? It all starts with the fountain of being fixated on the sacred text. What that means is time in God's word is a great commission issue. Do you hear that? You see, we spend time in God's word not merely for our own personal devotional delight, but we do so for the sake of the nations. Which brings us very quickly to foundational reality number three, and I close with this. Reality number three, you must know the sustaining consolation in Christ. You must know the sustaining consolation in Christ. So with this authority declared, His mission given Christ now supplies the greatest source of courage and consolation that could possibly be given. Look finally at verse 20. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, and you had better because this is what all of history is about, is to make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to keep all as many many things as I commanded you. Here it is, and behold, I am with you all the days, even until the end. Of the age. I don't know if you have family heirlooms, things passed down from grandparents, great grandparents, even further than that. We love rare and sacred objects passed down over the generations. I just want you to know this global mission is the most sacred heirloom that you could ever possess, and it was handed down from the Lord and builder of the church himself. You understand, this was not just for the 11 disciples bowing down in front of Christ. It was for them and for the disciples they made and for the disciples that they made, and it has been passed down in history from the hands of our comrades on a sea of blood, and today in May of 2020 in Texas, it has been given to us. This is for every generation of Christians in history. And yet the question becomes, we're almost done here, the question becomes, what does it mean that Jesus Christ is and will be with us? When he says, I am with you, what does he mean? How is he with us? You have to understand, this isn't just that he authorizes our mission. It is that he is the driving force of our mission. Does that make sense? He's not just the, uh, he doesn't just authorize our mission. He is the decisive force in our mission. In other words, he sustains it. He empowers it. He not only bought his bride with his blood, he saves his bride through the proclamation of the gospel through your mouths. This isn't just moral support. 
as, as he watches us, our puny efforts to advance his plan. This is the sovereign support of his perpetual presence. He is with us. He is among us. He is in the midst of us. How? How is he with us? And you know exactly what I'm going to say. He is with us. He is in the midst of us in and through his word. That's how. You understand, the presence of Christ is just as real and just as powerful as the physical presence of Christ was with his disciples, bowing down in front of him. It is not a deluded presence. It is not. Because I know perhaps what you're thinking. Maybe you think, well, you know what, I'm not very smart. I'm not very educated. I don't think very fast on my feet. I don't know very much to which Christ replies. That is irrelevant. I am with you. Maybe you think I'm not very talented. I don't really have a lot to offer people. I'm not very gifted. I don't have flashy gifts. I can't, I can't do these kinds of things to which Christ replies. That is not the point. I am with you. Maybe you think I'm just really scared. I don't have courage. I don't have boldness with the gospel to which he replies. Do not be afraid. I am with you. Or maybe you think, I really struggle, and I have a lot of sin, and my life is a mess, to which he replies, did you not hear me? I am with you. I am with you, he says. In you, through my word, to give you what you need to do, what I command, I am with you, he says. Until the very end of the age. And what is the end of the age? when all of God's elect are redeemed and history is no more and Jesus Christ rules the universe from a throne in Jerusalem. You understand, this is certain. This is, this is guaranteed. This is going to happen. And Christ will be here with us every single step of the way to make absolutely sure that it does. Let's pray. Oh, Christ, this is familiar, but no less fantastic. We know this, oh Lord, but we don't know this nearly like we should. Oh Lord, we feel it this morning. We feel the sleepiness of our souls. We feel the laziness of our hearts. We feel, oh Lord, the hesitation in everyday life to view people as real people with real souls who will really spend eternity somewhere. And Lord, what we need from you, what we need your help with, oh Lord, is not mere motivation, but what we need, oh Lord, is we need lenses to see your supremacy, your infinite authority. We need lenses to see that this is, this is a sure thing. This is all, this is no lose, win-win situation, that the end has already been written. We have nothing to lose and everything to gain. We have souls to gain. Help us, Lord. Help us as a church to fulfill this mission to make disciples in our homes to have those conversations, to be bold, to be courageous, to know the gospel, to know it so well that we could recite it at a moment's notice. Help us, O oh Lord. 
and then not just that help us to be people of such profound depth, biblical depth, that we can make disciples and give them the whole counsel of God. Oh, Lord, help us move in our church and produce that, we ask. And in your matchless name we pray.